Uh, We've been looking at the theme of how to focus on Christ. Uh, Last night, we looked at Paul's wonderful panorama title over all his life, his identity, for me to live is Christ. So we looked at the theme of Christ, the only way to live and die. My wife spoke this morning on anxieties, taking them to Christ, to the women. And then this afternoon, we looked at Christ as the road to cultivating holiness in our lives. Tonight, we want to look at two more themes related to Christ, running and enduring the best race, running and enduring in the, in the best race by looking to Jesus. And then in the second address tonight, 745, we'll look at Christ coping with suffering by considering him. So we're going to be tonight in Hebrews 12, and then, <coughs> God willing, I hope to come back to you. I'm going up to Jerry Marcelino's conference in Laurel, uh, Mississippi, for Friday night and Saturday and Sunday morning, giving four addresses there on prayer. John Kelvin on communing with God in prayer, Anthony Burgess on Christ's intercessory prayer, Matthew Henry on developing a method for daily prayer. Those are three historical talks. Uh, on Friday and Saturday, and then Sunday morning, I'm hoping to preach for them on taking hold of God and ourselves in real prayer from Isaiah 64 and James 5. And then we'll drive back down, God willing, and preach for you again for the last time on Sunday evening and um, at 5.30 in, in this, um, this house of prayer. We'll be speaking about how Christ meets all our needs as our office bearer, prophet, priest, and king from Luke 22. So that's the roadmap of where we've been and where we're going. And if you turn with me now then to Hebrews 12, I'll uh, read from verses. Hebrews 11, actually, verse 37 through 12, verse 3. Hebrews 11, 37 to 12, verse 3. <clears throat> Hebrews eleven thirty-seven. let's hear the word of God. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. Oh, sorry. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. And then my text for this evening, Wherefore, 
seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So those two verses I want to preach to you on now, and then the second address tonight is on the third verse, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Let's pray. Lord God, bless the reading of thy word and the preaching of thy word now as we look at the best race ever, running and enduring for Christ's sake, looking to Jesus. And then later this evening, coping with suffering by considering Jesus. Lord, exalt thy son tonight in these two major areas of our lives, that we may be Christ-centered in our daily lives, in running the race, but also Christ-centered in coping with affliction that comes to all of us. So help us in preaching and bless us in listening. And may we be more godly Christians for hearing what we hear tonight. And may those who are unsaved be found wanting in their own souls and cry out to thee for a personal relationship with thy son, that they may seek thee while thou art to be found and call upon thee while thou art near. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Never, never, never give up. Those are the famous five words that Winston Churchill became most famous for in all the commencement addresses he gave in his life. That one was most unforgettable. His message was simply, keep on keeping on. Well, that may be true in secular life, but it is a thousand times more true in spiritual, Christian running of the best race ever. We keep on keeping on. You see, it's one thing to begin the Christian life. That's a miracle. It's a miracle to be saved. It's another thing to press on in the Christian life. It's a miracle to stay saved. We often don't value the second miracle as much as the first. For example, when, we, when it comes to Pentecost, well, the standard text, of course, is to preach on Acts 2, verse 4. The Holy Spirit gave them utterance, and the wind filled the house where they were sitting, and they spake with tongues, and we marvel that everyone could hear in their own language 
What an amazing thing. But we forget that Acts 2.42 is also an amazing thing. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And in the breaking of bread. And in fellowship. And in prayers. When someone asks us how we got converted... We tend to tell them how we became a lost sinner before Christ, and rightly so, and then began to get an interest in Christ, and then Christ was revealed to our soul, maybe through a sermon, maybe through fellowship with others, and by the grace of God, we embraced him, and we were saved, and the burden fell off our backs, and we stop. That's only the beginning of conversion. Conversion is a lifelong phenomenon. So it's one thing to begin something. It's another thing to persevere to the end. It's true in church life, too. My dad used to say to me as a teenager when he knew I was called to the ministry, he said, remember someday when you're in the ministry, to begin in a congregation is, uh, well, it's a wonderful thing. Everybody's hungry and thirsty. You're like a... There's an old Dutch saying that says a new broom sweeps clean. You come for the first few times, first month or two, maybe six months. It's a honeymoon period. Everybody listens to every word. You start a new activity, the whole church comes out. Wonderful. But come back five years later. And all that church activity you started, it's down from 150 people down to 50. See, it's one thing to begin something. It's another thing to continue. And maybe you're a Christian sitting here tonight wondering, how do I continue to run the Christian race all the way to the end, to my last breath? How do you keep running when your hands are hanging down? When you're fighting some kind of darling or bosom sin, as our forefathers used to call a sin you're prone to fall into? When you're discouraged, when you have enemies, when disappointment overwhelms you, when you feel weak and tired emotionally, spiritually, when you're sick and discouraged and you cry out, why, O my soul, am I cast down within me? Hope thou in God, but I can't seem to find him. I can't seem to hold on to him. And what's the use of persevering and enduring when everything seems hopeless? When you feel like Asaph, verily I have cleansed my heart in vain. So how do we endure? How do we endure in running the Christian race to the end? Well, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 give us the answer. It's profound, yet simple. We endure As Christ endured, when he was tempted to surrender in the battle of spiritual warfare, we walk as he walked, and we walk out of his grace and his strength and run the race all the way to the end. And so I want to look with you at uh, just three thoughts in this address as we talk about running the best race in Christ to the end. It's mission, what it is, 
It's manner, how you do it. It's motives. What motivates you to keep running the race? Mission, manner, motives. Now, the author of the book of Hebrews wrote to Jewish Christians who were being pressured to return to the ceremonies, sacrifices, and customs of Judaism. He vehemently denounced such a return as apostasy from Christ, as a denial of the grace of the gospel. And for that reason, the book of Hebrews progresses through cycles of threats against those who turn away from Christ, followed by majestic and glorious statements of the surpassing excellency and superiority of Christ over the ordinances of the worship of Judaism. Christ is the end. Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is the sole purpose of the entire Old Testament priesthood, worship, and sacrifices. And the Hebrew Christians were tempted to give up because they were discouraged. They were being persecuted by their fellow Jews. If you were a Hebrew Christian in their culture, you applied for a job, and there was another one who applied who was a Jew who still adhered to Judaism, he'd get the job. If you're a Christian pastor, you might be thrown in jail for preaching the Christ. And so this book is written as a sermon. It probably was a sermon or two sermons or maybe even three. It's written as sermons to encourage, discourage Jewish converts who were paying too much attention to Christ-rejecting Jews. These unbelieving Jews were challenging the spiritual worship the Jewish Christians enjoyed in Christ. They're saying, your religion is so boring. There's just a man standing behind a, a podium saying words. But you don't, you don't have a temple. You don't have high priests. You don't have men in holy robes and colorful clothing and you don't have the priests uh, doing sacrifices. and your, your religion seems so empty. Well, the author to the Hebrews gloriously, movingly teaches us how Jesus is far more than all the Old Testament sacrifices and rituals and ceremonies put together. In fact, they all point to him. They're all fulfilled in him. He's the colorful one. He's the beautiful one. He's our salvation. And to go back from that is to go back to shadows rather than to substance. Now today, of course, we're persecuted by the secular culture around us that tries to mock with Christianity. In fact, ministers are often persecuted. Isn't that true? Even in the, in the media, they're looked upon as fools. You see bumbling ministers who are femi-looking and just kind of weird and eccentric. And they're portrayed in movies today. Not the masculine minister who speaks with us at the Lord and who's got command of what he's doing and who's competent. No. 
And Christians are marginalized everywhere. I sat on the plane next to a, a, a woman on the way down uh, just this week, down to visit you. My wife was trying to evangelize her. Oh, she said, I'm a scientist. I don't believe in God. That's, you know, I mean, she smiled as she said it, but the implication was, Christian? That's archaic. You know, that, you know, you're not very intellectual if you're a Christian. And maybe you young people, maybe you, you've been teased or challenged. And, and, and you wonder, how, how can I keep going when I'm so disparaged by those around me? Well, I once had to give a conference address somewhere of an overview of the book of Hebrews. And I read it three times. And uh, the third time, I really realized what this book was all about. 96 verses, I counted, in 13 chapters. Let's say something like this. Persevere. Press on. Don't be discouraged. Remember, hold fast the profession of your faith. You have need of patience that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. 96 verses that basically say this. Keep on keeping on. Endure. Endure. That's the theme. Actually, that word is in all three verses of both messages I'm I'm going to bring you tonight. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with patience, the King James says here. But the original Greek is the word endurance. Let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who endured the cross. For consider him, verse 3, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Endurance. That's the mission. That's the mission of running the race. So how do you endure? What what does it mean to endure? Well, I looked it up in the Oxford Dictionary. Thought I'd get the official word. Here it is. To hold up. To remain. To continue under pain without flinching. Got that? To hold up. To remain. To remain in place. Keep on running. To continue under pain without flinching. Christian life is a race. It's not a sprint. It's a race. And you need to know that in this day of the author of Hebrews, the author is actually painting a picture in verses 1 and 2 of the famous Greek Colosseums. You know, in the French uh, <coughs> bike-a-thon today, you know how they bike for about two weeks. <laughs> Every morning you wake up and you look at the news and you think, wow, they're still biking. They're still biking. It's a long bike race. Well, that's what the, the jogging used to be in the Greek Colosseums. They wouldn't sprint. You'd be tired in a minute. But they would jog. They would keep on running. And they had a fairly steady clip, but running, running, running. Then they'd pass the baton on to another runner, and he'd run and run. And they'd run 
through the night and through the next day and through the next night and, and, and days and days they'd run and, and stand, the stands would be filled with those cheering them on and saying, yeah, keep on running, keep on enduring. And they were running the race. They were in it for the marathon. That's what it was, a marathon. And that's what the Christian race is. Don't you think? It's a marathon, a marathon that will be tested. The contestants in the Christian race include the author of Hebrews, the Hebrew Christians to whom he writes, but also by, by mutual faith. Us, today, this book is inspired for us today. We are still, 2,000 years later, in this long baton race. The baton is now in our hands. We're to run, we're to endure to the end. It's a serious race. It involves the texting, the testing, and the taxing of our faith, our strength, our character. Life and death are set before us. We must persevere. We must keep on keeping on. And how do we do that? Well, we saw that this afternoon. We do that by using the means of grace. We're daily in the Word of God. We're daily searching the Scriptures. We're daily in personal and intercessory prayer. We're daily reading sound literature. We're daily having fellowship among the saints. We're weekly keeping Sabbath. We're living out antithetically the Christian life over against the life of this world. We're enduring by using the means God has provided to give us the strength to endure. And so we press on. Day in, day out. Press on when the burdens are too heavy. We press on when we think we can't take another step. Or we can't carry on another day. We can't go on another week. We press on when we want to rest. We press on to the end. To endure means to say, O Lord God, though thou slay me, yet will I trust in thee. It's to trust in God. Enduring is to trust in God as my greatest friend, even though he seems to act as if he were my greatest enemy. It's to trust in God when I can't understand his ways, when it's all a mystery, when everything seems to be against me, as Jacob said. It's to have faith, to use the means of grace expectantly in times of unspeakable challenge and affliction and difficulty. Now, how in the world, how in the world do you do that? Well, that's point two, the manner, the manner. Our text says there's both a negative and a positive manner. First of all, the negative manner is to rid ourselves of sin and hindrances. You notice that in verse 1. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin, the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So the Greek runners, when they would get out on the racetrack, get into the starting blocks, and the gun would go off and they'd start running, they would hand their coach every piece of clothing they didn't need. They'd run nearly naked, actually, because they didn't want anything to encumber them. And they had nothing with them. They would run without any hindrances. And so the author pictures this spiritually. He says, sin is a hindrance. Sin is like having layers of clothing on that get in the way as you try to run the race. 
You've got to take that off. You've got to discard sin. You've got to throw skin away, sin away. He calls it the sin. Commentators have three different interpretations of what that means. One interpretation is it means your darling sin, your bosom sin, special sin in your life that afflicts you, that becomes your idol, that you put in front of God. How foolish it is to do that, but yet we're prone to do that, aren't we? Prone to put something in our life ahead of God. When I was very young, I, I was a basketball player, and I was, I, was, I was going to go, I was going to go. And I, I, my great goal in life as a fifth grader already, and then a sixth grader, and it kept growing. I wanted to play. I wanted to be a first string starter in 11th grade on the Lloyd Norris High School. And I wanted to play that game, that famous game against Kalamazoo Central, where it would get 10,000 fans and the Western Michigan University stands. And I wanted to be the top shooter, and I wanted to shoot that last basket to win the game at three seconds to go. That was it. So I played my heart out for years. For years, I dreamt of, of these things. And then God came into my life. I thought, oh, I can still play basketball. I can still play. And I kept going. But for me, maybe not for you, but for me, it was an idol. I loved it when the fans shouted when I made a basket. I got to 11th grade. I got to be starter in a school of 2,000 people. In 11th grade, I had another year to go to really excel. And then the big game came that I dreamed about. It actually happened. And I was wrestling. I'd just become a Christian. And I was wrestling with, who am I serving? Am I serving basketball or am I serving God? It began to bother me and I was wrestling with it. And the night before the big game that I looked forward to for six years... It came to a head. I turned open my Bible. This text jumped out at me. You cannot serve the table of the Lord, the cup of the Lord, drink of the cup of the Lord, and the cup of demons. And it became crystal clear to me. I had to let go of my idol. Next day in the morning, the morning of the great big game at that night, I went to the coach and said, I'm quitting today. I have to lay aside the sin that so easily besets me. So that's one interpretation. And and that sin can be all kinds of things. It doesn't have to be that you're a drunkard or you're a thief or or you're on drugs. It can be that you make an idol of going shopping at the mall or You can make an idol of being on Facebook six hours a day. Anything that you overdo that takes away from God and that is before God in your life can be a bosom sin. Another interpretation of the sin is unbelief. Unbelief is the mother sin of all sins. And that fits the context because Hebrews 11 is a a story of all, well, not all, but many of the Old Testament saints who lived by faith. And the problem with the Hebrew Christians 
was they were being unbelieving, that God couldn't help them through all these struggles, all this persecution, all this rejection that they were enduring at the hands of their, their fellow Jews. So that's a, that's a legitimate interpretation. But the third interpretation is that it could just be any sin, the sin, meaning whatever sin is hindering you at the moment, because all sin is a hindrance, isn't it? Every sin is an obstacle to running the race. One time I was preaching at a conference in Wales, and there was a feisty, lovable, but feisty, old Christian lady there, 85 years old. Boy, when she talked about her experiences, it was dynamic. And uh, she was telling me about one day when she was, now oh, maybe 80, three thieves broke into her home, and they tied her up. They blindfolded her. And they uh, began to steal things in her home. And she heard them. All of a sudden, she could recognize, she could recognize the noise that they were taking her grandmother's heirloom china. And she shouted at them. She said, you thieves, you don't belong here. Get out. God will bring you into judgment one day for what you're doing. And one thief sat down beside her and started talking about his own deprived childhood and so on. And then the other two thieves got involved and started mocking this guy. And they got into an argument and, and they all left without the china. <laughs> which was a happy ending to that story. But what I thought about later was, this is the way we should treat sin. When sin breaks into our door or crams itself through our windows and enters into the house of our hearts, we have to say, sin, you don't belong here. I'm a Christian. Be gone, sin. I'm to reckon all sin dead. I'm to be dead unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ. Be gone, sin. You see, the problem isn't that there's sin in the world. The problem is when we let sin in. You know, John Bunyan once says that in his autobiography, Grace Abounding, he was so troubled because sin was still in his heart. And, but then he said, the Lord showed me that when sin knocked on my door, and if I opened the door and saw sin, that wasn't itself sinful. But if I shut the door right away, but if I let sin in, not just sin breaking in, but I let it in. Let it into my mind. Let it into the, the parlor, Bunyan says, of my home and meditate upon it. Even if I don't engage in it, the meditation thereof is sin. Well, who's right in these three schools of thought? Well, I think they all are. I think it is unbelief. I think it is your darling sin. But I also think it's all sin. Every sin is a hindrance, especially your bosom sin, especially unbelief. And you lay aside that, you see. You've got to, you've got to understand when you run the Christian race that sin is a monster. Sin is, sin is anti-God. Never, never make light of sin. Sometimes you meet Christians and they talk about their past and they're forgiven, they say. But, but they talk so frivolously about their past sin. Almost, almost joking about it sometimes. It makes me feel uncomfortable. 
Oh, your bosom sins. How, how can you ever joke about those? You look back on those years with regret that you gave in to those sins, even though they're forgiven. You don't, you don't make light of them. And, and, and you see, sin is really spiritual insanity. It's putting, it's putting an object or a thing or a thought or an idea or a human love above the love of almighty, triune, sovereign, faithful, holy, merciful God. Sin is our, our enemy. We've got to put it off. We've got to kill it. We've got to put a sword through it. Lay aside sin. The sin that so easily besets you. Sin, if you're a Christian, is a thievish foreign intruder. Don't let it rest in the home of your new heart. I had an elder who passed away in my church about 29 years ago now. As a dear man of God. His wife called him down from the bedroom to have a cup of coffee. He didn't answer. She came up. And he was in the praying position on his knees beside his bed with his head in his hands. Dead. But he ran the race to the end. I missed him terribly. He's one of those father figures of an elder for a young minister. And uh, he told me this story. His father also was an elder before my time. Very God-fearing man, similar in character, kind, humble, sweet, Christ-centered. Spurgeon says those kinds of people in the church are worth ten. And uh, this, this elder said to me, my father used to always say to me, if you're a Christian, you ain't got no business sinning. If you're a Christian, you ain't got no business sinning. Grammatically, that doesn't work, but you get the point. You see, when it comes to sin... I need to say, that doesn't belong to me. Christ belongs to me. And I belong to him. He's my master. Not sin. So that's how you run the race. Negatively. Now, you can never run the race effectively, only negatively. The positive is always more important than the negative. And positively, you run the race by looking to Jesus. Look at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. How do you run the race? You lay aside every weight, every sin, which so easily besets you, and you run the you run with patience the race set before you, looking to Jesus. That's it. Confessing Him, appropriating forgiveness, learning to live by faith as a forgiven sinner throughout the entire Christian race. You look to Jesus, who ran before you and who ran perfectly to the end. He's both our model runner and he's our coach along the way. And so just as the Old Testament saints live by the promises of God, so we, surrounded by them as a call to witnesses, must focus by faith on Jesus in whom all the promises are yea and amen. So enduring is a matter of faith. It's a matter of looking to Jesus, 
living in Jesus, as we saw last night, living out of Jesus. We can be sure, we can be sure of our faith because of Jesus, because he's our uniquely qualified supplier and sustainer of faith. He's the one who evokes our faith, who stimulates our faith, who gives us grace to endure in our faith. He's the author and finisher of our faith, the text says. He's the pioneer and the perfecter of our salvation. He will not allow a single one of his children to fall to the side of the road as they run the race. Because he's the finisher of the faith of his runners. Faith is a gift in the work of Jesus Christ. From its origin to its completion. Our faith will never be in vain. We will never appeal to Christ in vain. And therefore our faith must be directed to him. It must gaze upon him. It must fix its gaze only upon him. It must concentrate on him. He's the supreme exponent and giver and author and finisher. He's the alpha and the omega of our faith. He's really everything. My mother got dementia 18 months before she died. She was 92 when she died. When she died, by the way, she had 92 great-grandchildren. 35 grandchildren, five children. She was an only child. And she prayed for every one of them. Every birthday of a child. My parents weren't rich at all. We couldn't even have a whole hot dog on a bun when I was young because it cost too much money. So we had to slight the hot dog in half and put one hot dog on two buns. But every penny went to the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren. She'd write a little letter in a birthday card every year to every one of the descendants. Every child would get $20 a year in the card. Every grandchild would get 10 Every great-grandchild would get 5 She was always on her knees for us, for us all. Hours a day. Praying one by one. What a mother she was. So sincere, so simple in her faith. But she got dementia at the end. Didn't know who I was. Didn't know I was a minister. It was hard. She kept her same sweet personality, happily, throughout. But six weeks before she died, I was reading to her from Revelation 21. I said, Mother... Do you ever think about heaven, about going there? Do you look forward to it? Oh, honey, she said, I'm, she called everyone honey. She knew no, no one's name anymore. Oh, honey, she said, I, uh, I'm so confused. I, I don't even know how to think about it. All right. I read a few more verses. I read this verse. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I said, Mother, do you know what that means? And I thought, oh, as soon as I said it, I'm just going to make her feel foolish. I shouldn't have asked. Of course she doesn't know. And all of a sudden, she got a flash of insight. She said, doesn't that mean that Jesus is the one who begins in our life and he's the one who finishes his work? And then she added to the text. She did some eisegesis. And she said, and he's everything in between. I go, wow, Mother, that's a better, better answer than I would have given. Because it's true, isn't it? 
He's everything. You can't begin the race without him. You can't continue the race without him. You can't end the race without him. Look to Jesus. That's the way to run the race. Look more to Jesus by faith than you look to circumstances around you by unbelief. That's the way to live. That's the way to run the race. Now, you may say at this point, well, I agree with everything you said. But my problem is motivation. I'm so discouraged so often. How do I motivate myself to really run that race? Well, our text answers that as well. That's my my third thought. There's two major motivations here in the text. The first is the example of Christ himself. And that's got four parts to it. So bear with me a few more minutes here. Four parts to it. And then the second motivation is the cloud of witnesses at the very beginning of verse 1. Let's look at both of those motivations. First then, the example of Christ. How can Christ motivate you to run the race? Four ways. First, by what he endured. He endured the cross, the text says. That's amazing. The sinless son of God, son of man, endured the cross. The cross. The cross, which is bigger than all the crosses all of us together in our entire lifetimes ever had to endure There's no one that had to endure a cross bigger than Jesus' cross. Perhaps you heard that story of a woman who had a dream one night. She had such a big cross, such a big affliction in her life. She said to the Lord, I'll trade places with anyone. I can't bear what I'm going through. And then in her dream, she walked to her next door neighbor. And, uh, oh, there was quite a good-sized cross out on the front lawn. Everybody had their cross out on the front lawn in her dream. She looked at that cross and she thought, hmm, nah, I better, better keep mine. Went to the next neighbor, same thing. And then she found a neighbor where there's no cross on the front lawn at all. She said, that's the, that, that's the one I want, no cross. She went to the front door, she rang the doorbell. This is all in her dream. And a lady came to the door and she said, I'm here to change, exchange my cross for yours. And the lady said, honey, you don't, want to, you don't want my cross. It's so big I can't get it out the door. And she woke up. And she said to herself, I better be content with the cross I have. You see, no matter how big your crosses are, I want to tell you something. Jesus endured a far bigger one. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me that you might never be forsaken of God? Your crosses are small compared to his. They may be big compared to other people. But you see, you get motivated when you understand that he did all this for you. Gethsemane, Gabbatha, Golgotha, the agony, the crawling on the ground as a worm and no man, the being spat upon, the being slapped, the being robed with a fake robe, the crown, a plaid of thorns on his head. The nails in his hands and feet. 
The suffering and agony of his soul as he was forsaken of God and forsaken of man, forsaken of heaven and earth and hell, and hung naked between them all. And even the sun wouldn't shine upon him. Oh, the cross he bore for your sin and my sin. And then we're going to complain about the heaviness of our crosses. And he did all of this to bring us to that place that is crossless. To be with him forever in glory? Be motivated. Be motivated by the fact that he endured the cross. On the cross. No grace extended to him. No favor shown. No comfort administered. No part of the cup of his father's wrath removed. That your sin might be forgiven. Number two. We are motivated by what he rejoiced in. Do you notice that in the text? For the joy that was set before him. He rejoiced under the cross, knowing he'd be the victor in the battle with the powers of evil in the end. He would be resurrected by his father. He would be taken home to glory to receive his promised reward. The joy that was set before him was the joy of his homecoming. His own homecoming. The joy of reunion with his father. The joy of being crowned with honor and glory and have all things put under his feet. The joy of bringing many sons to glory. The joy of saying, and you too I trust will be among them. Here am I, Father, and all those whom thou hast given me. The joy of having no empty chairs in heaven. His mission will be a complete success. You ought to be motivated by that. You ought to be motivated, you see, that you are joyously awaiting the eternal weight of glory, knowing that your future home is with Christ in heaven, and that future home is secure, that you're going to be married with Christ forever in sacred utopian marriage. For the joy that is set before you, run the race to the end. Don't give up. Keep on keeping on. Thirdly, we ought to be motivated by what he despised. You see that in the text. For the joy that was set before me endured the cross, despising the shame. It was very shameful to die on the cross, naked, on the main road out of Jerusalem. Mothers would walk by with their little kids and say, look at those guys who all, on the cross there, who all committed treason. They're just big sinners. Don't ever be like them. And there's Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the sinless Son of Man. What shame. What shame. What pain. But what shame. Maybe the shame was even worse in many ways. But he despised the shame. Because he was doing his Father's will. He was living by the fear of God, not by the fear of man. And to live by the fear of God means to value the smiles of God to be of greater weight than the smiles of men and the frowns of God to be of greater weight than the frowns of men. So if the world puts you down, despise the world's shame. Count it all joy. Be motivated to count it all joy when you suffer for Christ's sake. Let Christ's willingness to endure shame motivate you to endure the world's Shame. And then finally, 
We ought to be motivated by what he's doing right now. Look at the end of verse 2. Is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is he doing there? He's interceding for you moment by moment by moment. There's never a second. There's never a tick of the clock. If you're a true believer. That he's not remembering your name. At the right hand of the Father. He ever lives. Ever lives. To make intercession for us. He has an infinite capacity to remember all of his people at one moment before his father, collectively, corporately, but also individually. What a comfort. No matter what I'm going through, he's with me right now. Robert Murray McShane said, when you pray, how would you pray differently if you knew that Jesus was standing right beside you? And then he said, he is. (laughs) He's always right there. He's always present. He's always interceding. He will never let you go. He's got you. He's got, he's got you on your, his high priestly shoulders. He's got you in his high priestly heart. He's engraving you on his high priestly hands. He's got you in his high priestly eye. You can't get away from Jesus when you're a believer. Praise be to God. He sat down. At the right hand of the throne of God. To keep you. Running the race. All the way to the end. So be motivated. Be motivated by what he endured. Be motivated by what he rejoiced in. Be motivated by what he despised. Be motivated by what he's doing right now. Keep on running. To the end. And then finally. The witness of the saints ought to motivate us. Go back to the beginning of verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we are so compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. All these Old Testament witnesses of Hebrews 11. Who ran by faith even though they were sawn asunder. Even though all kinds of terrible things happened to them. And they didn't even have the cross. They just had the promise of the cross. And they ran until the end. Why can't you run to the end, New Testament saint? They're gold medal winners in the race of life because they ran to the end. They being dead yet speak, Hebrews 11 verse 4. And they are now in the stands cheering us on to persevere, to keep running to the end. Enoch walked with God. I still remember when I was 17 years old, reading Genesis 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and my heart just sprang up within me. I said, that's what I want to do, Lord. How do I walk with thee? Enoch motivated me. Hasn't Abraham motivated you? If you're a Christian, I know David's motivated you in the Psalms many times. We've got a gallery of saints, Old Testament saints, in our stance. But we have more than the Hebrew Christians. We've got all the New Testament saints in our stands. How many times has Paul motivated you? James, John. And then we've got 2,000 years of church history. Wow, I've got tens of thousands of books. I've got all kinds of forefathers that have motivated me. From well-known names like John Calvin and, and Thomas Watson and William Perkins. And, but also women like Ruth Bryan and Sarah Hawkins and, and Mary Winslow and... Uh, women that could write glorious Christ-centered truths, they're in my stands. Who's in your stands? You probably have thousands of people as well. 
Tens of thousands, maybe. In fact, all the saints of church history are in our stands. Saying, keep on running. And then maybe you've got, like I do, you've got some forefathers who are in your stands. My, my mother, my father. My father's in my stands. My grandfather. My great-grandfather. Didn't know him, but he's in my stands. I heard a lot about him. And then, in one way, even people alive today, even though they're on the racetrack with us, they're also cheering us on, aren't they? It's like they're in our stands. That's what church is all about. If you were the only person sitting here tonight, it'd be very different than it is right now, don't you think? But because you have one another, you encourage each other on to keep on running the race. My dad died on the pulpit. He had a heart attack as he was leading a church service and fell sideways and hit the ground with a thud and went straight from the pulpit to glory. But a few years before that, he had had some heart troubles, but then he had an aneurysm surgery. The doctor told him it was five times as dangerous as a heart attack. So he thought he was going to die. So he called. He called all of his children around. And he gave us each last words. And when he looked at me, he just said, keep on preaching Christ. You can never preach him enough. Till today, this is 30 years ago, till today when I'm preaching, I often hear that voice, keep on preaching Christ. Don't give up. When you don't see converts, don't give up. Keep on preaching Christ. Preach him to the end. He's in my stands. We cheer each other on, you see. It's not just Christ we're motivated by. We're motivated by all the Christians around us. Sometimes, I don't know if you think about this, but sometimes I think, what would happen if I were to fall into sin? What damage I would do to the cause of Christ? What confusion in the people? What division in the church? What tragedy on so many lives? Oh, Lord, help me to keep on running the Christian race. That Christians around you motivate you to be faithful all the way to the end. All the way to the end. That's why I love, I don't sell books to make money. I sell books because I, I, want, you to, I want you to feel like Luther, that most of my best friends are, are dead ones. And, and let these books, these writers, motivate you to run the race to the end. That's the point. And blessed are you if you're an encourager. If you're a runner, but you also encourage others. You're in other people's stands saying to them, run the race, don't give up, don't give up, keep running. And blessed are you if your spouse is one of those for you. I have that blessing. It's priceless. 
a few times each year. Thank God it doesn't happen every Sunday, but a few times each year we're driving to church and I, I just feel like I can't preach. I do anything to run away from the pulpit, even though I love preaching. And I just say to my wife, or I'm quiet and she notices it. She says, you've got it again, don't you? And I go, yeah. And she reaches over and she puts her hand on my wrist and she says, oh, honey, he'll help you one more time. Ah, one more time. One more time. Keep preaching. Keep running the race. Thank you for being in my stands, my dear wife. You know, I preached a sermon on this text in my own church some years ago. And there was one young man in my 45 years of ministry. He's the only young man that ever gave me trouble in catechism class. He just always tried to trick me with trick questions. He tried to disturb the class. He was obnoxious. I just pulled him aside. I talked to his parents. Nothing helped. I thought, what, what's going what, to end up being? What, what's this man going to end up being? But I persevered with him, talked to him, I preached to him. And, you know, after I, after I preached, after I preached this sermon, on Monday morning, he came to visit me at the seminary. I didn't know the Lord was beginning to deal with him. He was older now, he's probably about 25. He walks into my study and he starts weeping. And he says, Pastor, through his tears, thanks for being in my stands. Thanks for being in my stands. It was, it was like music to my ears. I said, is the Lord dealing with you? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm a lost sinner. I, how do I find Jesus? Oh, that's a minister's real wages. That's a minister's real wages. When God draws a sinner to himself, that's worth more than getting a check of $100,000, I'll tell you. Thanks for being in my stands. Whose stands are you in? Who on the racetrack are you encouraging? Are you helping others? Are you saying to others, keep on, keeping on? Well, I'll close this message with these words, this story. Soon our life will be over and the end will come. And for those who persevered to the end, what, what a glorious future awaits you. Spurgeon said, a Christian gets the best of both worlds. He gets communion with Christ here, which is far beyond the joy of any worldling. And he gets a perfect joy hereafter, which the world will never know. Some years ago, President Gerald Ford passed away. I've been in Grand Rapids the last 36 years. 
And Grand Rapids is kind of proud of Gerald Ford because he grew up there and they kind of liked it, the Grand Rapidians, that he wanted to be buried there by the Ford Museum. And so our family, along with hundreds of others, went to the highway. People lined both sides of the highway when the Ford body was put into the hearse and drove down the highway to the museum. There was a little boy on the other side of the highway. And he had a sign above his head that was bigger than he was. And he was waving that sign. He was like happy. And, and the sign said, Welcome home, President Ford. And I thought to myself, Isn't that something? Boy's, home, boy's happy to welcome home a dead body. But you see, the day's coming, if you're a believer, where that eternal highway into the celestial city will be lined up with thousands and tens of thousands of cherubim and seraphim and saints made perfect. And as you come down that highway, as Samuel Rutherford said, to meet Jesus standing with a soft cloth at the gate of the celestial city to wipe away every last tear from your eye and the crowds break out on both sides of the highway. Welcome home, sinner, saved by grace, who persevered to the end. It will all be worth it. Keep on. Keep it on. And before you know it, you'll be above all strife and all sin and all darkness and all affliction. And you'll be with Jesus forever, gazing upon his face in that world of perfect love where you never struggle with sin again. And never have to say again, evil is present with me. Never have to say again, my known familiar friend lifted up his heel against me. Never have to say again, there was any disharmony among the people of God. But forever, perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect union, perfect communion with Christ, with the angels, with the saints. It's the best race ever because you're on your way to glory with Jesus, the Christ, and through him, the triune God. You keep on keeping on. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask thy blessing upon this message. We pray that we would endure by laying aside sin and by looking to Jesus, that we would be motivated to endure by Jesus himself and by the saints of ages past and the present age, and that we would run the race to the end. Give us the grace to do so through the means of grace, and that we may soon, Lord, O Lord Jesus, come quickly, that we may soon meet thee face to face and hear thy wonderful voice, my friend, come up higher. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.